Raising the Bets is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to Raising the Bets. We're a Catholic couple raising five kids outside of Boston. Join us as we share the joys and challenges of marriage, homeschool, and our adventures near and far as we make sense of the world and experience the best parts of our culture. I'm Don Bettinelli. And I'm Melanie Bettinelli. Melanie, we are recording afternoon, late afternoon on Sunday instead of late evening Sunday. I hope that the listener can hear the increased energy in my voice. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. See, you're a night owl, so 10 o'clock at night, you're still... At, right. In your prime, I'm like heading down. <laughs> yeah. So I, if you listen closely to episodes, you can hear my like by the end of the recording, you're not you're hearing me less and less. <laughs> That's probably why. But this one, I'm on. OK. All right. So let's get started right away. We've got some listener feedback and this feedback comes from listener Brian, who uh Brian's a friend of ours, longtime uh, friend of ours, local uh, via Facebook. And he writes, hey, Melanie Dom, I've heard you talk about using chores, schoolwork, etc. as motivation for screen time for your children. As my kids will be starting summer vacation next week, I was wondering if you might be willing to share how you regulate screen time with your kids. He wrote something else, but I corrected it. <laughs> he wrote screw instead of scream. Screen. Screen um, time okay. with your kids. <laughs> so, okay, Brian, I do the same thing. It's just an unfortunate uh, mistype. It's, I don't think I even noticed that. Yeah. Uh, my brain, you automatically supplied the correct word. Yeah. It's getting out of control on our end and need a new approach. Thanks, as always, for your podcast. I've listened to every single episode since you started. Thanks, Brian. We are actually, this is our third anniversary. No, fourth anniversary for it. Really? The podcast. We've been doing this for four years. That seems... Wow. Unlikely, but true. <laughs> yeah. Okay, then. So um, you responded to him in on Facebook, but I thought I you could talk about some of the things we, we do for screen screen time for our kids. I basically just almost, I mean, they're not quite cut, cut and copy and paste, but I kind of, I just basically gave him a rundown of what we have, of the rules for screen time that we have posted in the kitchen. Um, yes. So basically the rules for screen time are one, you have to have finished all your schoolwork. I said, in the case of summer vacation, you might want to, in place of schoolwork, put something like read a book, do some sort of enrichment, enrichment activity, you know, play a board game, something of your choice, basically that you want them to do. That's, you know, not screen time that they might not otherwise do on their own Two. They have to have done their chores. Um, and this is sort of above and beyond the like personally picking up after yourself. But Personal like, hygiene. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and, you know, picking up your, your mess. Right. This is stuff for the family. Right. So often chores are unload the dishwasher, load the dishwasher, uh, unload the dryer, the washer, you know, move the stuff from the washer to the dryer and the dryer to the um, basket, uh, fold clothes, vacuum a room, take out trash, tidy a room, take out the trash, yeah. those sorts of things. clear the table for dinner, that I've, sort of thing. 
Yeah. I've also let a let child weed a garden bed or do some dusting. Yeah. Yeah. But those are the ones that our kids tend to, to gravitate towards. And they tend to have a particular chore or chores that they like. Yes. And we let them do. Like Anthony loves to uh, emptying the dishwasher it, you know, uh, during the day, not after dinner, which is a whole other thing, is his thing. Emptying the dishwasher. Right. So then they also have to go outside and or get exercise. Sometimes like on a rainy day, I may not necessarily enforce going outside, although one can go outside in the rain. <laughs> you will not or, melt. <laughs> or in the cold or in the heat. But Sometimes, okay, I will say, yes, the weather is miserable. You don't have to go outside, but can you do some exercise in the house? <laughs> and that's what happens when we record at unusual times. <laughs> uh, so, and then the last rule is no whining or complaining about having to do the first four rules. Right. This is the fifth rule. So all no complaining about the previous rules. Right. Right. Because if you complain, then you lose the opportunity to have screen time because I do not want to listen to whining about how I don't want to do exercise or I don't want to do a chore or my schoolwork is hard or whatever it is that they want to complain about. Um, I found that when we first instituted these rules, there was a lot of whining and complaining. And that's why the last rule was added. And it didn't stop it completely immediately, but it definitely helped to nip it in the bud. Right. And so when they when they've completed this and they have to get approval, they can't just go do it. They have to, you know, you have to sign off on it. Um, then they can get a, a half hour of screen time, quote unquote. Sometimes it's 40 minutes. Sometimes it's 35 Sometimes like, we've we've had moments where they said it takes 10 minutes to get the game started. It's not fair. So we've said, OK, you can have the 10 minutes. You can add 10 minutes to the timer and then, you know, you can you can you can get 35 or 40 minutes or whatever it is. Uh, but they have to set a timer. They usually use the echo to set the timer um, in whatever room they're in. And they they're required to get off when the timer goes off. That's been the big sticking point. That's not something that we've been very great at enforcing. Well, I enforce it. It's just, it's, it, the problem is they, they're like, I'm not at a saved point. I well, can't save That's yet. what I mean by enforcing. Yeah. I mean, right. I mean, we're not very strict follow, about it. Follow through. Yeah. Some games are better than others. Like Minecraft, you can just you turn it off and you'll pick right up from where you were. But, you know, some of the, you know, like the Steam Deck game, you know, there's a there's a save point, and if you don't stop at the save point, you lose your progress after the last save point. And some children don't apparently don't hear the timer or forget that the timer is going on and on and on. And I'm very susceptible to noises. I get very disturbed by, especially like timers going off forever and ever and ever and ever. And so um, I. I get frustrated when I hear timers going on and on and on. So whereas whereas I'm a little bit more sympathetic to the I didn't save my game and I, I don't want to lose my progress. I'm kind of a pushover about saying, oh, oh, I'm sympathetic to it, too. I've played a lot of games. I play games, so I, I get it. But, you know, 
sometimes the timer has gone on for been going off for 15 minutes and they've gotten an extra 15 minutes. So uh, all that's just to say we're not we're, we're not perfect at this. If you if you imagine that like this is a system that runs smooth like <laughs> like flawlessly yeah. without any bumps or complaints or anything this is not the case. These are our rules and we have struggled with actually yes. enforcing them. Um I often forget to ask the child if they have gone outside or if they have done exercise and they get away with not doing it because I am usually in the middle of something else when they come and ask right. me to well, have usually time. homeschooling some other child right. <laughs> working with them. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, it's and not it's every so, child, not every kid is, is is held to the same rules. This is mostly for the younger three. Bella and Sophie have slightly different rules because they're older. And and frankly, it's really mostly for the boys because Lucy asks for screen time maybe once every three weeks. Yeah, she does she, play she, a lot on the iPad or whatever. Um, yeah, this is this is primarily primarily teen and preteen boys rules. Well, and the fact is, is preteen and teen, preteen boys, I, I in my experience have the hardest time separating. Although uh, we've seen where it can be a, a problem for for teen girls as well uh, you know separate getting off of the not so much video games is just getting off of the devices um but bella's bella has um built our trust you know she 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 played for a while she gets off you know she, um sophie is good about earning time and doing things and being proactive and knowing you know the limits and that sort of stuff. So the the older they are, the more trust they build, the less we have to enforce these rules, which is the way it should be. Because no one's going to be enforcing these rules on them when they're 20. Right. The main the main idea behind the rules is really for them to get a sense of what a healthy relationship with screens look like, that you don't play them nonstop for hours on end and that you should take care of your responsibilities before you sit down to play. So look around Make sure that you've done your chores, like any housekeeping stuff that needs to be done. Start the laundry, start the dishes before you sit down to enjoy yourself. I mean, this is kind of the rule, the standard I life. hold. <laughs> right. These are the standards I hold to myself. Before I sit down to relax, I make sure I've ticked off all the things that need to be done. And so I want to give them that sense of responsibility goes before pleasure. Right. And that screen time is not something that should be unlimited. Sure. Um, yeah, when work is done, then it is time for fun. <laughs> that's really the the way, I mean, that's the idea anyway. And yeah, not to spend all your day staring at screens, which is just the big, it's the trick for us. I mean, we have the same issues, you know, they, they've made these things so addictive. It's hard to break away at times. So, right. All right. So, Brian, I hope that helps. And everyone else, if anyone else has any input on that, we'd love to hear from you, what you do or, you know, any ideas that you have and what's been what has right. helped what you. What works for you? Because we're always looking to, like, refine and improve what right. we do. And, and everybody's situation is different. Our kids are not your kids and vice versa. So it's it's not one thing will work for everyone. We, we we're not sitting here like we're parenting experts. We're not. <laughs> we're just we've we've just figured out what to do with our kids. Your kids are a whole different story. <laughs> and we can trade tips and say this worked for me. So maybe it might work for you. But yeah. So let's move on to talk about what we've been doing this week. Uh, first, uh, 
folks who aren't on the East Coast may not realize, but those of us on the East Coast have been dealing with the Canadian wildfires, or at least the, the literal fallout from those. Uh, although we've been uh, a little bit blessed by by the quirk of the weather. Right. We were much luckier than my friends in like New York who really got. Right. So what science. happened is there's this wildfires all over Eastern Canada, especially in the Maritimes and the smoke and soot is, is coming down from there in the, in the, uh, in the air streams and has been so it's turned the sky red in some places. It's like, I don't know if you, you've never seen, um, Blade Runner 2049, but there's a part of it where it's like it's in the middle of a dust storm, like old Las Vegas in in, and it's like red skies and everything's just red. It's what it looked like. It looked apocalyptic in, in some cases. Uh, we we didn't have that here, but what we did have was we did have elevated particulate levels. We had we had haze and we had the the sun did look rather red and yeah. the shadows underneath the trees looked rather red. Yeah, not like super red, but yeah, there was, there was some definitely red. a reddish tinge. To and it. we had a few days of low low air quality alerts. So so what I did I decided to do is we have one air purifier that I've had in our bedroom for a while. Um and I decided I needed to get two more. There was one in the uh, we had an air purifier in the boys room for years that was just it wasn't very good. It was kind of terrible. So uh, I've I've got the two more air purifiers for the boys' room and one for the boys' room, one for the girls' room. It's it's been a really good one for us. I, I like it. Um, I ordered a fourth one for my office, and it's a smart one so that I can turn it off when I'm recording and turn it turn it off and bat automatically when I'm not. Except something went wrong with Amazon and it hasn't come yet. So <laughs> who knows? But uh, we've had to, we've been dealing with that. Um, kind of like, kind of like shutting the barn door after the horses have escaped because well, we got them after the, the air quality had gotten better. Well, nevertheless, the air, having the air purifiers for all of the people in our family who have various asthma ailments, when there's pollen in the air, we have a very dusty house to begin with. I think having the air purifiers is, is I would have gotten, I was thinking of getting them anyway, Right. this was just something that pushed me to, to do it now because yeah, we, we really needed these in, just in, in general. So right. my, my point was just that like getting them after was, we got, they came just as the, our air got better and the air quality alerts were lifted, but yeah, I know what are you gonna do? So, uh, but then today we had, uh, we've had some, rainy weather the last few days which probably helped actually get the stuff out of the I, air i think that's what, what i read was that that's exactly what helped the yeah. the big storm fronts pushed the smoke out out away from us you're welcome new york <laughs> they got our, our our red skies uh but today we had really nice weather uh sunny about 80 degrees and that helped uh because we had our our end of year cub scout pack meeting which is uh, usually a cookout of some sort. And uh, they had, we had it in Pond Meadow Park, which is a park that spans, that's on the border of two towns near, near Springtree and Weymouth. And um, it was uh, in the woods at this scout camping site that's at the park. There's no camping usually allowed in this park. It's a big forested park. And there's no camping usually allowed there except they have this camp scout site that no one had no one in our troops had known of our various troops and packs. So uh, we, we were going to have a, a cookout there, have our, you know, ward ceremonies and then, um, you know, kind of 
take a look at the place and decide if we want to have some uh, scout camping there in the future. So, um, yeah, it was nice. It was a good time. It was a yeah. good crowd. Nice, nice burgers and dogs and yeah. watermelon. and Yep. A bit of a hike, um, parking a lot, and then there's paved bike paths, and so you had to walk there. I'd say it was like a quarter mile. Yes, it was about a quarter mile. And I was hauling my big, heavy new cooler because I wanted to take my new cooler for a ride. <laughs> and I kind of regretted uh-huh. having to haul that thing. It was heavy. Well, <laughs> I know. That's I, why I pulled it and didn't tell, didn't make anyone else I, pull it. I offered to pull. I know. I know you did. I didn't want you to pull it. It was, it was my responsibility. I decided to bring it. It's a cool, no pun intended, cooler because it's uh, battery powered. And it's got this cool battery pack, and it's got Bluetooth. And you just wanted to to show off your new toy. Look, every dad knows that when you have a new cool gadget, you show it to the other dads. That's just the way it is. I don't think you actually did much showing. No, because then I felt self conscious because you all said something before, so I didn't really show it to anybody. We said something to what? What's that? You guys said st- so you guys pointed it out to me before we got there that I I'm bringing or somebody said something I think Sophie or Bella did uh, because they're too clever and smart and they yeah I can't get away with anything anymore now I got three of you who can see right through me and uh-huh. so uh, so I'm like well now I'm not going to say anything because now I kind of feel silly but like <laughs> <laughs> like you know that whole like okay. uh, the male ego thing. Um, um, okay, sure. So, I don't understand. Sure, because you don't have a male ego. That's thankfully. true. I don't. That's which is good. So uh, I know I, I'll you know next time we go camping they'll I'll, they'll see it because I'll bring it with the Troop Thirteen stuff. Okay. Whenever that is, who knows if we'll ever go camping? <laughs> that's a whole other story. Um. So yeah, that's what we've been doing. Anything else we get to get going on? I mean, we got a full slate of. Uh, appointments last week and next week that's for sure uh yeah i'm trying to think what else we've been doing should we update folks a little bit on the on the doctor front you've you find you were able to you had okay false appointment (laughs) evidently the pediatrician had rescheduled the physicals that were on my calendar for this last week um and I put the new appointment in my calendar. I just forgot to delete the old appointment. So we hauled ourselves down to the pediatrician's office and the receptionist was like, what, what are you doing here? I don't have you on my calendar. And I just, oh, sinking feeling. Yeah, that was my fault. Um, <laughs> but. But the upshot was. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. The upshot was that this is the office to which our doctor is migrating. And I was able to ask them about the process of onboarding because they had told us that the process was supposed to be you sign up for a new patient portal account and then we'll get in touch with you. But I was like, I've already got a patient portal account under my name because of the kids because there's no way to have a kid's account that's not tied to a parent account. Yes. And so I had an account just that listed. I don't have, I have a doctor with another practice. And so the very, very nice receptionist got on the phone 
and connected me to central registration. And of course, since I was calling from within the building, I didn't have to wait online. The wait line wait times were horrendous. And yep. I got to jump the line and got everything taken care of. And she even like scanned my insurance card and everything. So it was not entirely a wasted trip, although it was kind of a wasted trip, especially from the point of view of the children who did not have to go. <laughs> they were... And and then and then like they're highly offended at having been dragged there. I think I think it was a sort of insult, adding insult to injury for me to then make them sit around while I talked on the phone while like sitting in the waiting room of the doctor's office. Um, but I was happy to get one thing to- knocked off my list, and I'm a little bit more comfortable now about knowing that eventually I will be able to have my physical with my doctor. Nice. Yes, that'll be good. Um, one of these days. I haven't heard from them yet, and I suppose this, like, I don't know if I should wait to for them to call me or if I should just get on the phone and sit on hold forever while I, I'm trying to. Personally, I would say wait because I assume that the patients who are getting the highest pri- priority right now are the people who are, like, have more medical crises in there. Right. And I didn't have any appointments scheduled until July. I had a cardiologist appointment in July and my, my regular doctor checkup you know, a, a check-in in September. So it's not like I had something that was, you know, right away anyway. So by, yeah. by the time, by, by the time those roll around, you'll probably be all set. Yeah. New doctor. Yep. Things. So that's what's been going on. Let's talk about some things we've been uh, cooking and eating. So uh, as we've mentioned before, we like to do a um, menu every week. We We try to plan a menu of, what we're going to eat for the week. And uh, this past week, our our menu had um, on Thursday, bourbon chicken. That's our usual, that's a, a dish we go back to again and again. We've talked about it before. And, but Thursday rolled around and I realized, A, there was, the recipe calls for boneless, skinless chicken thighs. And all I had were frozen bone-in chicken thighs with skin on. And I'm like, oh, so I just like I'd have to defrost it all, debone them all. That's a huge process. And I just didn't really want to make bourbon chicken. <laughs> it just was you ever have those days where you just like I just don't want to make the thing that is on the re- on the menu that we would plan for all the time. Yes. Well, yeah, I know that happens to you more than it happens to me, I guess. So uh, you you came through. In a pinch. I said, well, what do we have? And you you said that we did have those bone-in... Chicken thighs. Chicken thighs. Yep. And the thing is that I had bought tomatoes, and we had basil growing, and we had bought some mozzarella cheese, and I really wanted to try to squeeze some caprese salad into the menu this week, and it just didn't really fit with any of the other dishes so it was like this weird like i had planned to make caprese salad and then like forgot to actually plan a meal that That matched like so i was just gonna like throw a caprese salad in as an appetizer in front of bourbon chicken which was kind of weird but okay we were gonna go with it so then when you said i don't really want to make bourbon chicken i'm like well what can we make that's italian-ish that will go with my caprese salad and that isn't pasta because and that isn't pasta because i'm currently not eating wheat and that, so like because you had said that we had the chicken fr- frozen chicken thighs, the frozen chicken thighs. I was thinking, well, what if we made some like Italian ish chicken thigh dish that 
maybe when in the instant pot so that we didn't have to deal with defrosting them. Right. Now we did. So we come up with this, this instant pot chicken cacciatore recipe, which did require that they be a little bit defrosted. Right. It worked yeah, completely. I, yeah. I found this chicken cacciatore that sounded really good. And it was just like hitting the, like, that's the flavor I want for dinner. And I figured I could make pasta for everyone else. And yeah, I could chicken cacciatore is something you don't, have to have pasta to eat though right so this it has uh chicken thighs uh, fresh mushrooms celery onion garlic i didn't do the celery of course not because you don't like celery oh no wait maybe i did this says uh, a can of stewed tomatoes but you like whole stewed tomatoes what did i end up doing i ended up oh you used the passata i used yeah your your jarred tomato thing because it was open tomato saucy thing there's a passata is an italian it's basic like cooked tomato basil garlic just like a thin sauce thin sauce that is like sort of supposed to be a base for a more and then i i added some of my own homemade sauce which has all the flavors in it right and then i threw in some some olives and some pepperoncini brine we use the homemade sauce because we didn't have any tomato paste right right but also my homemade sauce is really good yeah um, pepperoncini brine olives yeah some wine some chicken, chicken stock. stock um herbe de provence yeah herbe de provence uh some a more um basil and yep what do you call it bay leaf and in more garlic uh, probably well the garlic that they called for so it was really good it was it was really really good <laughs> i don't know if all the kids liked it some some kids don't like bone-in chicken in a sauce there's like a thing yeah i didn't like it when i was a kid i didn't like chicken cacciatore as a kid because i didn't like chicken on the bone in a in a red sauce on pasta it just seemed weird to me yeah so um, i I don't remember it being a huge thing that i I hugely loved although my mom did make chicken cacciatore yeah but i will i will put the link in the in the show notes because it's a good recipe and it was very quick uh we just adjusted the time to be a little longer on the pressure cook to compensate for the for the chicken still being frozen inside you know most of the pieces of chicken were still frozen in the middle yeah. so but, but what i made was sort of had a passing resemblance to the recipe that i used because i really well you don't follow recipes i don't <laughs> i use it as an inspiration it was kind of yeah Something like that. But you could use this. You could do this recipe as is, or you could adapt like Melanie does. Yeah. Either so, way. It, it would, I'm sure it will be perfectly good if you follow it as written. Yes. I, just, so I the, don't want it. I don't want to like oversell it because what I did was not really the recipe as written. Well, but if you listen to what you did, you know, you, 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 the additions that you made, they might approximate something. Yeah. So uh, the other dish new dish this week we made was uh, called sticky coconut chicken and rice. Now it kind of, I kind of have to explain where this recipe, how I found this recipe. There's a meme going around based that, that kind of talks about how um, in the comments of recipe blogs and recipe articles on websites. So this is a New York times recipe, how people will often well, I changed this, I changed that, and I changed that, and I didn't really like the recipe. It's like, well, why did you, if you substitute everything, it's not the same recipe. So how can you say you didn't like it? And the meme was, you know, I for the sticky coconut chicken and rice, I swapped out mango for the chicken and, uh, hot, you know, hot sauce and ice cream for the rice. And, like, they basically made a, a, a sundae. 
<laughs> coconut mango ice cream sundae in, instead of because but but I loved it uh, so it was kind of funny and in fact um, the the meme then says now go go check out the comments on this recipe to because they're 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 crazy funny uh, but what caught your attention was not the comments but the recipe itself I want the coconut chicken sticky rice <laughs> right sticky coconut chicken and rice. Whatever. <laughs> Everybody in this family who has said this has said it differently, and no one can remember what it is I was actually making. At one point, Anthony's like, "Where's the shrimp?" I'm like, "What?" <laughs> At no point did anyone say shrimp. But uh, anyway, so it's but kind of we have made coconut shrimp before. And I'm sure he heard coconut and coconut thought shrimp. coconut shrimp. Yeah, it made sense. Yes. So. It's a good recipe, and uh, I got it from the New York Times. It, the, the The fun thing is, is that it, it normally New York Times cooking recipes are behind a paywall, but if you search online, and there's a website called archive.ph, where a lot of stuff that's behind a paywall, sometimes stuff behind paywall is made available to people depending on how they come to the site, like especially newspapers. Like if a subscriber shares a link to you, you can read the article. And so archive.ph archives a lot of that stuff so that, you know, separately so that you can get at it later. It's it's sort of in a gray area, I guess. Like, anyway, it was there. So like, I'm going to make your recipe. Uh, so it's chicken thighs, then kosher, you know, salt, pepper, ginger, uh, garlic. So you minced fresh ginger, minced garlic. So you're going to make a, a garlic paste a garlic ginger paste that you're going to cook at some point. So you basically, you have a big Dutch oven and you heat your, you heat your oven to 375. Then you brown the chicken in batches on both sides in the Dutch oven on the stovetop, uh, and then transfer them to a plate. Then you add the garlic and ginger to the empty pot in the oil. And you, you have to add more oil. And then you add the rice, which has been um, rinsed to get all the starch off. I used jasmine rice. I didn't have um, short, short grain rice like it calls for, like a Japanese short grain or others. Uh, but the jasmine rice works great. Um, and regular rice probably would have worked okay, too. So you add the rice and cook it in the oil and ginger and garlic until it's all coated, which is really good. And it smells really good. And then you add chicken broth, coconut milk, bell pepper, they call for cashews, but Bella's allergic to cashews, so I substituted peanuts, um, scallions, and salt and pepper. And then you stir it up, arrange the chicken on top, and it's now it's pretty liquidy. And then you put a lid on it, put it in the oven, you bring it to a boil, put a lid on it, and you bake it for about 25 minutes. Now, I had to put more liquid in and bake it longer because the rice wasn't quite done at the end because... I didn't have exactly the amount of coconut milk. I should have adjusted. I had, it calls for two, for the amount I was making, because I doubled the recipe, it called for two cans of coconut milk. I had one can plus a little less that was in a container in the fridge. So I just threw that in. I should have added more, um, more coconut milk or more water. Liquid. Liquid, more liquid of some sort. But it worked out. I just five more minutes and a bit more water and it, and it was cooked. Um, we decided at the table that it needed more salt. And, and a lot more salt and it needed lime juice. Yep. Lime, like we added lime juice to the table. I could have added lime juice in the cooking stage, like to that, to the liquid. 
at the to absorb into the rice because that would have been all, like that would have been more limey, more, much more limey. Which I think it, yeah, and it suggests serving with like serving with hot sauce, and yeah, any hot sauce is is good on it. Sriracha, I really, Cholula. I liked it with the uh, chili garlic, no. the Thai yin. No, the, well, yeah, that that, but also oh, the, the Thai chili. The, gar- the sweet chili, sweet chili sauce, sauce. The Thai sweet chili sauce. Yes, you've, so you've gotten really into that lately. Um, it's like spicy egg roll sauce. Yep. Yes, it is. Um, I also would add um, some carrot to it, along with because the, the only vegetable in it was the bell pepper. I'd add carrot. I think carrot would work good in that. Yeah, it, I would have added more. I was thinking it would have been good with some like wilted baby spinach or some other mm. wilted soft green. I would put that in at, at the, very, the very end, like after the rice is done, just, just wilt some baby spinach at the very end. That right. Like right good. before you serve it. Yep. Um, it, I could added mushrooms like shiitakes would be um, dense enough to survive the oven. It's only 25 minutes. So it's not like a ton of time. Um, yeah. But some shiitake mushrooms would have been good in it that, as well. So it could it could it could use more vegetables. See, like zucchini, even I don't know the kids would probably wouldn't like it, but I I think a zucchini would have been nice in that. So those yeah, are the zucchini would not have been a popular choice. No, no. But then again, only some of them really like this. Uh, Sophie didn't like the the uh, the noise. It's sort of squelchy because it's sticky rice. It's kind of squelches, and um, the texture. I think it kind of put her off. Um, but others like the flavor. Uh, ben didn't really like it. He doesn't like the the fact that the rice and the chicken were mixed together. Uh, yeah. But otherwise, I thought there was there was some some liking it. Lucy seemed to like it. <laughs> yeah. Once the lime just came came around, the limes. Yeah, Lucy likes limes. Yeah, and Bella liked it too. I think a little bit, you know, as much as Bella. <laughs> she's she's like a bird sometimes. She she's not a huge fan of coconut flavors usually, so that's yeah. kind of not a selling point for her. I don't know. I really liked it. I had some leftovers for lunch today. Yeah. And it was good. Yeah, it was really good. I, I would totally eat that all the time. We had some chicken shawarma we made this week, and I had that for leftovers for lunch today with um, Chick-fil-A sauce. and It was really good. Chicken shawarma with Chick-fil-A sauce. That's just kind of blowing my mind a bit. It was pretty darn good, I have to say. Mm. So... Um, but Chick the the sauce was never my favorite part of Chick Fil A. Like I always, just, well, you don't really like honey mustard, and that's kind of what it is. It's a it's a, it's a um, less spicy, sweeter honey mustard sauce. Yeah, I, 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 like I, I was always just about the the chicken and the bread and the pickle. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's what we've been cooking. Let's uh, talk a bit about what we've been reading and watching. So let's start with stuff we've watched. I started watching a new show on Amazon Prime that they've been shoving at me at every opportunity. Every You know how Amazon, like when they have a new show they want to promote, it's like everywhere. Every time you open the Amazon, it's at the top. You're getting emails. Hey, don't forget, there's a show to watch. So this is called Citadel. I don't think Amazon does that to me as much as they do to you. Yeah, well, I probably watch more stuff on Amazon, so that's probably probably what it is. Uh, So Citadel, let me pull it up here, stars Richard Richard Madden and Priyanka Chopra Jones. She's Indian, obviously, from the Priyanka Chopra. Um, She was in a show on ABC a while back called Quantico. Um, So if you... If you remember okay. that, I remember only watching a few episodes of that before I kind of gave up on it. I didn't really like it that much. Um, 
And it also stars Stanley Tucci. Now, the way to think of this is, um, well, let me tell you a little bit about it. There's this uh, spy agency that's even more secret than the CIA, the NSA, the KGB, or the FSB, or whatever. Super, today. super, super top secret. Super, super top secret called the, the Citadel, or just, yeah, the Citadel. And they have their super secret agent spies, um, Mason Kane and Nadia Sin, played by the R2 heroes. And um, in the first half hour, first 20 minutes, you see them on a mission on a train. And the there's this emergence of this um, super evil organization of crime families called Manticore. And, they, and they're, they're going to do battle. There's a lot of, you know, implausible technology, like James Bond style technology. There's a lot of implausible fights and implausible ability to survive terrible things. And there's a lot of implausibility. But you know what? I realized very quickly, this is James Bond done today. This is a bond. These are bond. This is a bond film done as a series. And instead of one James Bond, we have two, a male and a female James Bond. But that has all of the hallmarks of James Bond. You have the super secret spy agency, the secret dastardly evil organization set to do bad things to the whole world that they have to stop. You have you know, fast cars, you have travel around the world. They go to all these exotic locations. They have completely implausible uh, layers for the bad guys and implausible weapons and just all this stuff that just, just is so implausible yet is the hallmark of James Bond and thus makes it really fun and kind of cool as an updated James Bond for the 21st century. So I kind of like it. It, um, a three but, but episodes without the James Bond brand name, basically. But it's, it's not, yeah, it's not at all connected to James Bond. But it's the aesthetic. It's, it's, it's the style. It's an homage. Yeah. Nice. It, it's come closer to a real Bond film than pr- pretty much anything since, you know, since Bond films were the pre-Daniel Craig Bond films. Like, it really kind of feels like a throwback to Co- Sean Connery or Roger Moore uh, style a little bit. Um, I don't know. It just it really has a liver let die or thunderball or moonraker feel to things. There's even a scene where he, you know, our our spy is on skis being chased down a mountain while bad guys are chasing him on skis, shooting at him, which is directly out of a Bond film. I don't classic. remember which one. I don't remember which one either, but yeah. it's classic. It's a Sean Connery though. Where he's where he's being chased out a mountainside. I mean, it is totally out of James Bond. So you, I mean, it's you can tell, and it's done by the Russo brothers, who did the two Avengers Endgame and Infinity. They did the Gray Man movie. They they so they really do these big spectacle movies, and they're so they're behind this series, which apparently has already gotten a second season approved and spinoffs. Spinoffs, wow. Yeah. Stanley Tucci is kind of fun. I really enjoy him in this. I like Stanley Tucci. He's sort of their combination M and Q from Bond. You know, the the guy who gives them assignments, but also the guy who gives them their tech. Um, So both of them wrapped into one character? Yes. Oh, interesting. And and he's kind of, I don't know, um, 
I don't want to give too much away, but he's kind of untrustworthy. He's kind of quirky and funny. And yeah, it's really kind of, it's a, it's a, it's a cool character. So I'm kind of liking, I mean, I don't, I'm not, I'm not expecting high art from it. It's, it's, I kind of like it. I mean, at, I'm three episodes in. It's a lot of violence, of course. It's a Bond film in the 21st century. Um, there's um, implications of romantic, you know, it, it's kind of sexy stuff. But there hasn't been, well, there's been no actual nudity. There is a scene where um, Richard Madden is almost completely, except for the important bits covered you know like the implication that something has just happened i mean so so if that bothers you 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 either fast forward the order or just you know don't watch but um yeah kind of kind of enjoying it yeah so you watched something on netflix right right i watched uh living which is a movie uh, the one it was nominated for a bunch of awards. I don't think it actually won anything. Anyway, it it's a remake essentially of an Akira Kurosawa movie. Um, the Akira Kurosawa movie's name is like escaping me right now. Oh, let me see if you I can, can look find it. Up, it. I'm sure. Um, and so I think I might have even seen the Akira Kurosawa movie like long ago when I was younger. I don't remember for sure. I watched a bunch of Akira Kurosawa and um. Anyway, this story is about, it's set in England, and it's got a very... um, Ikiru. Ikiru, yeah. yeah. Um, It's got, it's it's really beautiful sort of post-World War II aesthetic. Like, all the men um, in, in England, all the men wearing suits and bowler hats and... Right, waiting on tra- riding on trains to go to work. Basically, it's about a guy who's a minor civil servant. Uh, he works in the county planning office who lives an incredibly boring life. Like, just he goes to work, he does the job, he's boring as and stiff as can be, and He's like the head of his department after many, many years of service. And basically, the whole thing is almost a parody of bureaucracy. Like, the women come in who want to turn a um, waste-flooded, bombed-out plot of land into a park, and they just get nowhere, and their their petition is basically sort of buried in piles of paperwork. But then. He gets a diagnosis that he's got about six months to live. Uh, he's got cancer, I think, is the impl- implication. And at first, he sort of goes, decides to, he takes out all of his money. He, he buys a whole bunch of sleeping medication, and he's going to go to a seaside town and kill himself. And then he decides once he gets there, he can't do it. And so he gives the drugs away to a writer who says that he's working on a novel and it would be perfect if only he didn't have insomnia. And he goes kind of on this crazy, wild binge 
pleasure binge with this writer who drags him to all of these like places of ill repute and he kind of gets drunk and but there's this really poignant scene where he sings this song from his childhood this scottish song about a rowan tree and that that kind of fizzles out he's obviously not going to he's elderly he's not going to give into a life of debauchery <laughs> it's just not him um but he goes so he goes back to london but he's really just not not to work. And he runs into the young woman who is working in his, who's been working in his office, who's kind of the breath of fresh air, who kind of pokes fun at all the old stiff men. And he ends up taking her out to dinner uh, or out to lunch at the super fancy restaurant. And then he ends up taking her to a movie. And she's kind of, at first she's like, oh, he's so fun and he's so cute. And she's trying to get a letter of reference because from him because she's leaving and he's just sort of makes this the like, come and do this stuff with me and I'll give you a letter of reference. And then after a while, she starts to think this is a little bit weird. What does this guy want from me? And he tells her about his diagnosis and she's the first person he's told. Um, other than like the writer and they have this sort of moment. He's like, you're so full of life. And she's told him that she has nicknames for everyone in the office. And her nickname for him was um, Mr. Zombie. Huh. Because he's just like shuffling through life, like as if he's already dead. And that she basically changes him. And he decides that he wants to do something worthwhile with his life before he dies. So he goes back to work and he pushes through the petition of the earnest young housewives to build a playground, um, overcoming much bureaucratic uh, obstructionism in the process. And it's really kind of just sweet. Like he basically, they get the playgrounds made and then he dies and it cuts really abruptly from boilers. I'm just kidding. <laughs> right. It cuts really abruptly from the playground to the funeral. And you're like, wait, what? He died? Like, we didn't see the long decline. And then the rest of the story is told in flashbacks from all of the various people who used to work with him. Kind of filling in the blanks for what he did in the last months of his life. Mm. And his son is just completely like he didn't tell his son that he had a terminal illness and is he's his son is completely blindsided and he kind of figures out that he had told the young woman and he, he pulls her aside at the funeral and he's like did you know did he tell you why would he have told you and not me and she's just kind of i can't explain to you why he told me and not you but it really turns out to be like there's this sort of inspirational moment where all the stiff men from the office are riding together in the train, as they always do. And they say, you know, they kind of put together the pieces and they're like, yeah, he he knew that he was going to die and he chose to do this. And and one of the men is like, yeah, well, wouldn't we all like if we knew we were going to die, we would we would want to make a difference. And one of them says, but would we would we have really done what he did and they all resolve to make you know go out there and make a difference we're going to make our lives count and then it's really clear that they go back to the same old same old because without the their sense of doom their you know their the the sense of finite time is running out they don't have them the impetus to actually do it 
it's easier to just give into the bureaucracy. It, right. it was a beautiful movie. Like it is beautiful. Like the visuals are beautiful and the music is beautiful. And it's a really beautiful story. It's kind of one of those, it's a wonderful life sort of stories. Mm. Um, I could see where the culture of post-war Britain and Japan are very similar in this certain kind of work ethic and the extreme separation between the private life and the, the public social life. Right. Um, and I, I, it, it translates really well from the Japanese to the British uh, milieu and culture, I think. Right. Well, the idea of the, the, uh, the salary man in Japanese culture, the, the man who, you know, he's all about his job and his loyalty to the company and to his, his job. And, you know, how, you know, when your mortality is brought to you front and center, how that would change your outlook. And it's, and it is interesting that they, they, he goes first to the hedonistic and that doesn't satisfy. There's nothing about that, that, that has meaning. And so it's, it's in relationships and in true and, and in serving others, serving these women who are trying to build this park for the good of others that he ends up finding the meaning that he's looking for. Right. I mean, the iron, the irony is that he was a civil servant, but he had lost the sense of, service service <laughs> if he'd ever had it like, right there there is no service there is just the grinding paperwork of bureaucracy mm. and then suddenly like he realizes he could actually serve but he has to be stubborn and make waves and fight and i think he only has the strength to do that because he doesn't care like because he doesn't he doesn't have anything to lose right and I think it's kind of a sad commentary on, you know, the inability to do things unless you have that sense of there's nothing to lose. Like, well, the fear of doing things right. like there's a fear of, well, if I do, if I try this and it fails, I'm, I, you know, I might lose my position. I might, you know, when you're especially when you're older, you guy who is settled in life, he's, you know, it's played by Bill Nye, who's actually in his sixties, I think, I mean, probably a guy at the end of his career, there's a fear to, in taking risks that could cost you your, your job at this stage. Right. You know? It's it's very clear that he, he pushes back against the, you know, the head of the whole, whatever organization whatever, whatever, he's part whatever, of. Right. right. And who, who is very obstructionist and just doesn't want to deal with this. And he thinks it's ridiculous and silly and he's mocks it. And Bill Nye's character boldly pushes back. Like I, I refuse to to give in. And I think that takes a certain kind of strength of character. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's kind of a sad commentary on the way in which people tend to sort of sink to the lowest common denominator, the easiest thing, not actually wanting to make waves. We all have a tendency to be able to kind of settle in to do the easy thing instead of the hard thing. Mm -hmm. So like I said, it was, it was starred Bill Nye. Um, the original film, Ikiru was 
came out in 1952, and this uh, film is set at the same time. Right. It has that. It has that very 1952 aesthetic. It's, yeah. I mean, it was just. But the original film was a contemporary film. This is a like set a historical era. What do you call that? It's a historical drama. Yeah, I guess <laughs> what it, the the genre. Excuse me for a second, but yeah. So um, yeah, that sounds interesting. I, I highly recommend it. Nominated and, for two Oscars, by the way. It was uh, nominated for Best Actor, I think, Bill Nye, and Best Adapted Screenplay. Right. So. I mean, it's not a fast-moving, it's a character-driven movie. It's not, like, plot-driven it, at all. Yeah, one of those British long British movies where there's long periods where not much is happening. <laughs> but beautiful. I mean, sure, sure. Something to look at. Um, um, yeah. Oh, that's funny. What? Um, the writer who adapted it, Kazuo Ishiguro, uh-huh. also adapted Remains of the Day, which <laughs> I couldn't stand. I remember watching well, part you know, of that. He wrote the novel, or Remains of the he Day. He wrote the novel, right, The Remains of the Day. And it's, uh, I remember seeing part of that movie going, oh, The Remains of the Era. Oh, this movie takes forever nothing happens. I'm just, I'm, I'm not, I, I don't, I'm not prejudging this, but I remember my reaction to the, to to that one. You, That's kind of funny. Know, it's kind of funny because sometimes you can have patience for a slower moving film and then sometimes you have no patience. Well, I, let's keep in mind, I, this was like 25 years ago when, when I saw rem, part of Remains of the Day. I was a much different person then. So yes. today I would have a, probably a different reaction. I think I would, I, I'm much more mature than I was then. I just remember my reaction then. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's talk about some books. I finished another book. Uh, this one is called The Eagle's Claw by Jeff Shara. Now, this is a book about the Battle of Midway in World War II, but it's a novel. So if you know anything about Jeff Shara, he, he his he's a novelist who he writes historical novels and incorporates as much of the actual history in it. So it's like he's writing a history book, but he wants it to be in a narrative form. That's his that's his shtick. Um, he he gets as much of the actual historical data as he can and put and packs it in there, but but puts the book in this narrative form so you hear you know dialogue and thoughts and all the stuff you have in a, in a novel. So so it's fiction, but it's it's yes, it's uh, based on a true story, right? <laughs> but but more so than most uh, most um, books where you, or movies where it's based on a true story. So the um, it's pretty good. I mean, he's he's got a tough job here because he's, the Battle of Midway takes place over the course of twenty four hours. So he's got to tell more story than that. And so we have a lot about the build up and a couple of things about Midway that are important to, to know is that uh, one of the reasons we won the battle was mainly because of the the crypto crypto analysis, the code breakers in Hawaii who broke the Japanese code. And thus figured out that the Japanese were going to attack Midway and um, and the timing on it. Because the Japanese plan was, we're going to attack this tiny island in the middle of nowhere. And I mean, it is literally, it's actually um, two islands inside a coral atoll. So uh, East, Eastern Island and Sand Island. And it has runways. And it's basically, other than that, there's not much there. And it would put... Hawaii in range of Japanese bombers, long range bombers, which would be a bad thing. And so the, but the primary reason was they wanted to take this to draw the American 
uh, carriers, aircraft carriers, out of Hawaii into battle with the superior Japanese fleet and thus be sunk. We had we had three carriers. They had um, four in this particular fleet, but they also had others that they didn't bring with them, which was a bit of arrogance. They had a, a, a feint at the Aleutian Islands where they were going to uh, pretend to invade the Aleutian Islands to kind of draw some forces up that way. But really, they wanted to, they wanted to occupy Midway and then when the American fleet came, they would then destroy them there. But we figured it out ahead of time. And so the fleet was waiting for them. Now it was still a pretty near thing. Our torpedo bombers were terrible. I don't think, I don't know if any of our torpedo bombers actually hit a, uh, a, a Japanese carrier or ship of any sort with a torpedo. I mean, they, we are, they were pretty bad and they all got shot down pretty quickly. Um, and the Japanese Zero fighter was superior to any of the fighters we had at the time, but our dive bombers were really good, and that's what eventually won the day. We ended up sinking four, all four of the Japanese carriers, and they thought they sunk two of our carriers, of, of our three, but in fact what they did was they, they hit the Yorktown, which was on fire. We managed to put it out, and then they when they came back, they saw this carrier that didn't look like it, they didn't realize that it had already been hit, and hit it again, they thought they'd hit a second carrier, and so the Yorktown was lost. Um, so it's a pretty good book. It's interesting. Um, I felt the bits where we were kind of looking at Yamamoto and the Japanese was were a little bit long-winded and a little bit, I don't know, I think maybe he was trying to get into the Japanese cultural mindset and kind of show how it was different from, like, the American military mindset. But it felt very alien and maybe that's how it was i don't know um it was very different from other things i'd read uh the, but the the he was trying to emphasize the jap the arrogance of the japanese military at the time where they thought they could not be defeated and so um this idea that the americans could come out and deal them this blow was shattering and this is why Midway is called the turning point of of the the battle the war of the pacific at this point it was that was that from that point on the Japanese were in decline in the Pacific. Right. The, the, it was not inevitable that the, they would lose the war, but they never really came back from that. So, um, but it was a good book. I, I enjoyed it. I recommend it. Um, it, it I, I think it was, if you have any sort of interest in the history of, uh, you know, world war two and the battle of the Pacific, it's pretty good. I love the movie midway, uh, which was a, which a great 1975 movie that stars everybody in Hollywood. <laughs> it was a, and we showed that to the kids. No, it was uh Tora 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 was the name of it, right? Was that, that was the one we showed the kids. You showed the kids. I don't know. Right, 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 right. It was, um, I showed them, I showed them a movie about um, Pearl Harbor. Uh, I don't think I ever showed them Midway. That's a good movie. I should show them Midway. Or at least Bella would be interested, I think. <laughs> so anyway, that's the book I read. You read a couple books, or you read a book, reread a book. I, I, I read a few. Oh. Okay, <laughs> go ahead. Uh, so I finished the book that I was reading, Gentian Hill by Elizabeth Goge, which was really, really good. I loved it. Um, highly recommend it. Then I reread Project Hail Mary by Andy Weir. I think a friend of mine was rereading it. Or reading it, and I was like, "Oh, I really liked that story. I want to reread it." And so I did. Uh, no particular reason, but just it's a good book. 
And uh, it was even knowing what the plot twists were the second time through, it was still just as good. Um, although maybe a little bit less surprising. But you were telling me that it, it you, that rereading it, you actually got a more appreciation, like knowing what was coming. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a different kind of experience when you know what's coming and you like really appreciate sort of the artistry of how the narrative is woven together. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a little bit frustrating to me that the book would be really good for. I think that the some of our kids would really enjoy the story. There's just one scene which is really, really painfully not for kids. And I kind of wish I could just like cut out like it's completely ancillary. It's completely ancillary. It has nothing to do with the plot. You could cut it out and the the book would be absolutely fine. It's just like character color, but it's not appropriate for kids, at least not for our kids. And I just kind of wish I could delete that and then hand them the book. It's kind of frustrating. We were talking about Andy Weir has his own sort of genre that he writes in. Yeah, well, I was I was specul I was positing that you could call Andy Weir's um, The Martian in this. I haven't read Artemis, but but The Martian and, and uh, Project Hail Mary. I think you could call um, them uh, science fiction procedural. Right. Because there's kind of the quality of a police procedural where the plot is dictated by the the process the process and they are very process driven books more than they're even character driven books i mean the character or even plot or even plot right yeah it's it's the process of there's a bunch of problems that need to be solved and one problem leads to another problem or one you know unintended consequence of solving this problem leads to another problem or something breaks and now there's a new problem to be solved. And it's really the story progresses by moving from one problem that needs to be solved to another problem that needs to be solved. Um, And I really like that. Like Andy Weir does it so well. Um, And the other thing I noticed is that how well the device of amnesia works in this story. A lot of times amnesia can feel like a crutch when a writer employs it. And here, the reader is in sort of the same position as the narrator in terms of what we know about his past. And it turns out to be actually really important in terms of character development that you don't know how he got to the point where he is it also makes, I think, that the drama of the unfolding of his memory creates a lot of dramatic tension, and that works really well. Uh, so just overall, just a really well-crafted story that left me really wanting more. Yeah, it was, I mean, it's a definitively, the book has a definitive end. There's no sequel possible in that, but I want more from Andy Weir in this vein. Well, I, I feel like, he ended the story in a perfect place. Yes. But it still left me wondering what happens to the character next, if that makes sense. Like, I don't yeah. think that this, the novel needed to tell me that, but on a human sort of 
I'm enjoying, I'm invested in this person and I'm invested in his story. I it left me wanting more in a good way. Except by your own categorization of Andy Weir's strengths, that story would not be a good story for Andy Weir to tell. No, it would no. not be a procedural. But like I said, it, yeah. it ends at the perfect moment and it ends at a really satisfying yeah. moment for the character. But you still kind of like, but, but what happens but, next? But what happened? But what about that? But what about that? And that's that's a good thing. I really appreciate writers who have enough confidence to leave the story at the perfect moment and leaving you leave you yeah. wanting more, leave you wanting uh, w- with a little bit of unsatisfied narrative desire. Right. I think that's actually better storytelling than tying yeah. up all the loose ends. And the story where it wants to end, even though not all the ends that the loose ends are tied up. I think that's, I think I agree with that perfectly, perfectly appropriate. And that's one of the complaints you often see with um, TV series finales. Oh, they didn't tie up all the loose ends. They didn't need to. They told the story that needed to be told. Uh, insert lost here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, so that's, I agree with you there, I'm, but I am looking forward to what he does next. I did read Artemis, and I think the reason it wasn't as successful as either Martian or Project Hail Mary is because it wasn't quite the same sort of science fiction space procedural that that both Martian and Project Hail Mary were. So, so many people told me that, that Artemis was just unsatisfactory that I just decided not to read it. It was okay, but it was sort of just not remarkable. It was not... As remarkable as Martian and Project Hail Mary were. So right. uh, he needs to stick to what he's good at. So, yeah, I, I just skipped it and I probably won't yep. bother. And then the third book I'm about halfway through is nonfiction and it's called Silence and Beauty, um, Hidden Faith, Born of Suffering. And it's by Japanese-American uh, painter. He's primarily known as a painter, but he also writes um, Makoto Fujimura. Who we've talked about recently on the podcast. Right. Um, And this is sort of a memoir and sort of a commentary on uh, Shisuko Endo's novel Silence, which is a classic both of contemporary Japanese or modern Japanese fiction and of Catholic fiction. Um, Silence is one of those. And it was recently made into a film by Martin Scorsese, which I still haven't seen. And Silence is one of those novels that, Christians disagree with about very strongly. People either love it or hate it. And people who hate it, hate it really strongly and feel like it is absolutely almost heretical. Like they really think that it's, it's the way it depicts Christianity is absolutely terrible. Because it's about the Jesuits in Japan who apostatized. Who apostatized. It is a novel right. about apostasy. During the persecution. Right. Yeah. But what Makoto does as an artist, a visual artist, is he looks at the the heart of the novel is the Fumi-ie. I think I say that right. Fumi-ie. Um, which were depictions of either Jesus or Mary that were beautiful artistic depictions which were given to Japanese Christians to step on, to, to prove that. To destroy, yeah. But to destroy their faith. Right. It, it was a formal apostatize, and it was intended to be. But what Makoto Fujimura does is he really analyzes it from within a Japanese cultural mindset, both as an artist 
and a Christian. He's not Catholic, but his wife is. He's an evangelical Christian. He was actually born in Boston. Yeah, he was born in Boston when his parents were grad students, or his dad was a grad student. Um, so he's he lived a lot of his childhood in Japan, but he has American roots, and he ended up moving to America and marrying an American woman. Um, so he's kind of in both worlds. Yep. And he was uh, an adult convert, uh, unlike Indo, who was baptized as a child by his mom and who always felt like Catholicism was kind of chosen for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, the, the images um, are beautiful. And there's this certain tension that, that he looks at in Japanese culture between the need for the individual to sacrifice for the good of society and the aesthetic of the hidden and the, the broken. And he really looks at how Japanese society as a whole is a traumatized society. Like their culture is the result of trauma. Um, and the interesting thing about Makoto Fujimura is he is um, a survivor of, of September 11th. He lived within the like zone, the ground zero, ground zero zone. zone. Yeah. So he's writing from a very personal understanding of what it means to be a survivor of trauma, like a person who is living in ground zero. And he kind of sees that in silence, what, what you have is a portrait of a, an entire culture that has been traumatized beginning with the persecution of the Christians because he says that the interesting thing was that the Japanese authorities the the persecution of Christians in Japan was unlike any other persecution because the Japanese authorities realized very early on that killing Christians made them into martyrs and that the blood of the martyrs would be the seed of the church they realized that making martyrs would not kill Christianity. In fact, it would make it stronger. And so they decided that what would kill Christianity would be this public humiliation of trampling on the images. And they had this ceremony that happened every single year. They'd line up all the people who are suspected of being Christians and force them to trample on the images. And they also had this system of groups of five. They they arranged people in groups of five and you were supposed to report on the other people in your group if they were doing anything that looked suspiciously like Christianity. And what it did ended up doing was traumatizing people because it created this inescapable tension for Christians. And so it's a really beautiful book about sort of really looking at the novel Silence from a Japanese perspective, but as a Christian. And I think that anybody who disliked the novel or the movie should really like, this is a sort of a different way of looking at it that might change people's minds or at least give them more to think about the the story. Because there's a lot more going on if you're looking at it from the Japanese perspective rather than just from the Western Christian perspective. You know, he was an advisor on Scorsese's film. 
right. on, on the movie. So interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's just his his take is so profound. Yeah, it says uh, in his Wikipedia page says he was um, he he has he was at this point of his life he was searching for a deeper meaning and purpose but did not find satisfaction thinking the Bible's teachings were not applicable to the modern world. And it wasn't until he read the poems of William Blake where he found new meaning in Christianity and began his journey of newfound faith. And since then, he's intertwined his artwork with his faith. Interesting, because Blake also was a poet and a printmaker. Like Blake was very much into visual arts and creating um, illustrations for his poetry. Mm. So I see that, that Fujimura is also... Um, an artist and and writer, and it brings that deep perspective of the the art um, to his writing. A really profoundly thoughtful hmm. um, writer. Interesting. Really just, uh, cool. So, highly recommend. I'm continuing. I'm about halfway through, so there's more. I'm like looking forward to exploring. Good. So as we record this, it is uh, the Feast of Corpus Christi. And uh, so at Mass this morning, we had uh, our pastor, Father Matt, uh, who was celebrating Mass and um, led us in a Eucharistic procession at the end of Mass, which was really cool. We went out and around the church and back in again and then had a little benediction. Um, right. that His- was historically, historically, our parish has not had a Eucharistic. Well, I have to clarify. Yeah. <laughs> Our parish has had a Eucharistic procession, but it's put on by the Cape Verdean community. And it has not been something that, like, was generally opened, appeared to be or promoted to the rest of the parish right. community. It was it was kind of a, this is our thing that we're doing, and there was no, like, public well, ma- making of it. You know, I was thinking about that. Really, we, th- we think of the Cape Verdean community as being, you know, a subset of the parish. Our parish is really a Caperdean parish, right? We we just happen to we're go the, to the subset. We come, we happen to go to the English mass at the Cape Verdean parish. Yeah, because it's historically an English speaking parish, uh, and it's not formally a a you know national parish. But yeah, it's really a Caperdean parish, just like the other one, Christ the King, is a Haitian parish, and it's Our Lady of Lords, which is the English parish. Right. So. In any case, n- none of the, the the English community has not historically had a Corpus Christi procession right. that's associated with the English masses. And therefore, it's been something that I have felt was missing yeah. in our celebration of Corpus Christi, which is one of my favorite feast days. Yep. Uh, the other notable aspect before we get into the homily is um, the very cute baby that was sitting in front of us with the the, the couple. So cute. So I've noticed that the the two the two people who are directly in front of me, the the young woman, the young man, have start. I noticed them on Pentecost, and I've noticed them there ever since. Like I think they're new. And then this other couple that sat with them, who had a baby, she must. I think she, like the the woman from that first couple is like a sister to one of the others, like to the man or the woman. Um, the guy of that first couple, um, I don't think he's Catholic because he doesn't like do the the various Catholic calisthenics of mass. Uh-huh. Uh, so I'm just kind of speculating. I also kind of peeked over her shoulder and she was looking at um, a Portuguese missile during the readings. And uh, she so was, she, she's probably the Brazilian or Portuguese, right. probably Brazilian, but clearly very devout. And um, yeah. 
And uh, the baby was the cutest thing ever. So she, was, she was playing peekaboo with me over the shoulder of her, her uh, the, the the guy that was holding her. So, very cute. Uh, also, weird thing I noticed, I noted. Okay. It was the first time in three years I've shaken hands with someone outside the family at the sign of peace. Oh, see, I still haven't done that. He, he, the, the guy in front of me shook my hand. I'm like, oh, that's weird. <laughs> I'm all for it. It just was it's unexpected and like weird that we haven't done that. I realized. Um, also, in the Archdiocese of Boston, j- this past week, they lifted the last of the COVID restrictions, which was receiving uh, the precious blood. Although our parish Although did we not do it. Well, I think a lot of parishes probably didn't do it this weekend because there's not much time to ramp up the stuff. You, you need twice as many Eucharistic ministers and all that sort of infrastructure to do it. So it's not like they could. I, I'm going to guess they announced it in time for Corpus Christi, but that really wasn't in time. It's from from my point of view, someone who's worked in a parish before. They needed more lead time. Yes. So all that is precursor to Father Matt's homily. Um, he started by talking about how Easter, the Easter season ends with a bunch of big feasts. We have Ascension and Pentecost and Trinity Sunday and the capstone, Corpus Christi. I really liked the way he put that because I've always sort of noticed it, but I felt like it's kind of goes unsaid or uncommented on that like Easter, we are, we, we tra- are traditionally told that Easter ends at Pentecost. Which it does, the Easter season. Right. Yep. And yet it feels like it continues after Pentecost, like this season of celebrations, because then we have Trinity Sunday and then we have Corpus Christi. And it feels like. Even though we're in ordinary time. It's still, we're still in. It's like the celebration isn't really over yet. We're not <laughs> done quite with the big celebration. Yeah, it's like that the thing that they used to say at the end of the Life Teen Mass, the Mass never ends. You know, this, the celebration never ends. It just I mean, goes if on. If you think about it, Pentecost, Trinity Sunday, and Corpus Christi is almost a like a trinity of feasts there. The, the Holy Spirit on one end, you have Jesus in the Eucharist on the other end, and you have the Trinity themselves in the middle. Yeah, it's really beautiful. Father doesn't get his own day. Father's Day is next week. <laughs> I think God the Father is always gets a day. Right. I know. Just, so, but Father Matt starts with the big question. Why did Christ found a church? You know, we don't just follow Jesus because of his teachings. You know, right. we could do that without a church. If it was just he, could have, he could have just given us the message. Yeah. And then like not bothered with a church. Right. Here. Which, here's here's what you need to know. Good luck. Which, which frankly, a lot of Christians kind of do. <laughs> this is this is what they believe he did. Right. He he came. He gave a message and then he left. And it's us to, up to us to form a church. Right. But that's not the Catholic understanding of what church is. That's right. that's a very Protestant understanding of church. And that's not even all Protestants. It's just it's not Catholic. Right. It. We are in a relationship with him in the living body of the church. The church is not just its organization or an institution. It is the living body of Christ. And we are part of it with everyone else. But we could do that. We could have like the living body without a formal church, except for the sacraments. The sacraments are really what maintain that relationship between Jesus, the head and the church as the body there. You could, if you say the lifeblood of that relationship, right. Of that body. Right. Right. The sacraments are, are the power of Jesus working in the church. 
but the Eucharist is like of all the sacraments, it's it's more. It's different. It's not just showing Jesus's power. It's not just him working in the church. The Eucharist is Jesus physically present, corporally present in his church. I was typing as he was saying in autocorrect, instead of putting body, blood, soul, and divinity, it wrote soy, blood, soup, and divinity. (laughs) Okay. So body, blood, soul, and divinity. It is Jesus Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity present under the appearance of bread and wine. Like that is the reality, the central reality of the church. And at this point, Father Matt said, if you don't believe that, if you don't believe in the real presence in the Eucharist, just go home. Right. He's like, <gasps> which, was, which was kind of stunning. Like, and he said that like very like. Matter of fact. The door's over there. Yeah. You can leave now. Like it well, like because there's no point to being here. He's saying like, this, if you don't believe that this is Jesus Christ truly present, there's no point in any of this. It's because the mass isn't entertainment. You know, it's what I'm doing isn't very entertaining. You know, it's not a self-help session. It's not a concert, no matter how good the music. It it is the sacrifice of Christ present in the Eucharist. And if you and if you don't understand it, if you believe that, there's no point in doing any of this. Which reminds me very much of Flannery O'Connor's uh, quip. Famously, she said. Well, if it's just a symbol, then to hell with it. Right. Which is true. So, um, and then he told us about how the Eucharist is why he's a priest, you know, because he fall, fall in love with Christ in and through the Eucharist and wants to bring that to everyone. The Eucharist is why, you know, to serve others, yes. But the Eucharist is what drew, draws him in to be a priest. That's the thing that really drew him in. And that's kind of why we need a priesthood. Yes. We we could have, we could praise God and we could worship God. We could give God thanks without a priesthood, but we could not have the Eucharist without right. a priesthood. And you could baptize and you could do, other, you know, some things like that. You can marry. When, it, when in fact, this is like the Christians in Japan for 200 years. Right. They had baptism and matrimony. And you can have true contrition without confession. I mean, it's it's technically possible. Um, I wouldn't want to try it. But, you know, and without the priesthood, you don't really need holy orders. But in order to to do the, the you know, the, the priesthood is necessary for the Eucharist. And the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. He also said, make your amen matter, which is actually, I think, going to be the title of this episode. Make your amen matter. When you come up here and you receive the Eucharist, make make your amen matter. You, when you say amen, you're saying, I believe. That's true. That's it. Yes, indeed. This is Jesus. This is Jesus who I am encountering. Right. And who is encountering me and who is making me a part of his body right here, right now. Right. This moment. Um, and then he, he did make a statement like about how like the the strangeness of the the body and blood of Jesus appearing to be like bread and wine, and how can that be? And so he says like you know what don't don't get into all that. The Eucharist is its own category of reality, its own category of being. Just accept that and move on. And then he told the story of the Eucharistic miracle in Connecticut. I thought the way he told this, I because I remember seeing about that on social media and reading an article about it. And Father Matt said he kind of heard about it and completely just didn't really pay attention to it at all. Because if the church wants, you know, if it's, if it's real, the church will investigate it and whatever. And then he happened to be in Connecticut. At a conference. At a conference. And it happens to be at the parish where this Eucharistic miracle took place. And 
he was happening to talk to the priest who was the priest at, the the priest mass. at that mass. And suddenly it was no longer that thing that happened over there. It was right here, getting it from the horse's mouth. And that completely made him realize, wait, this does actually right. matter to me. We should tell people what, ha- what the, the right. uh, alleged miracle is. So there was a pre- the priest had an injured hand. And so he couldn't distribute, he couldn't distribute communion. So he gave a ciborium that was mostly. It wasn't full enough. It was, he said it was barely full. And he knew the priest knew when he handed the ciborium to the minister that it wasn't going to be enough. And he was going to have to refill it at some point while she was distributing communion. Excuse me. And he noticed though, that, she kept distributing communion and never. She wasn't breaking it. She never came back for more. And she said, at, as she came up to him after the distribution of communion, distribution of communion, it kept filling itself. filling itself. And he said, when she returned it after having distributed communion to the congregation, it was so full it was almost overflowing. 12 baskets full. <laughs> it, it was remind you something. It was more full than when the priest gave it to her. And he being a very experienced priest knew that it was not enough hosts to give communion to everyone who was present. It was not just a, well, maybe they just miscounted or misjudged. It was clearly more than when they started. And father Matt noted that the, this priest told him, the, there had been an incident in this particular church at some point, and there were video cameras that were um, security cameras. And so there were cameras on the Eucharistic minister the whole time. And when you look at the footage, she's not breaking it. She's not pulling it out of her sleeve. She's not secretly refilling it. And it is staying full despite giving out hundreds of communion hosts to people. So then the question is, is, so why? What's the what's the point? What's the point of this miracle? Why God did God do just, this? Does doesn't just arbitrarily do cool stuff to be cool? No, Father Matt did miss something, which what? is this year the U.S. bishops have declared a year of the Eucharist, and there's going to be a Eucharistic Congress, a National Eucharistic Congress in Indianapolis, and pilgrimages, Eucharistic pilgrimages, where 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 priests will be carrying the Eucharist and a monstrance. Walking, right uh, from fo- all four corners of the United States, and they're going to converge at Indianapolis, and one of the starting points is in that city, Hartford, Connecticut. Really? Yes, because of the Knights of Columbus. In fact, this parish was Father McGivney's parish. Oh wait, so that's okay. So that's <laughs> that explains some of the why too. Is this is I am going to give you. This Enough. Super substantial. In fact, that's what Father Matt said. God is at work in the world, giving his super substantial self in the world to the world. I'm going to give you not just even enough. I'm going to give you more than you need. What he said is the Eucharist is Jesus's presence here. Like Jesus's presence during his earthly ministry was small and hidden in the obscure corner of the Roman Empire and well, thousands of people saw him and heard him. That's just such a small, tiny subset of all of the people who've ever lived. But Jesus's presence, physical, bodily presence is still with us, even if we can't quite 
see it with our senses. And this is God at work in our world. This is God offering himself to us. And in this miracle, we see God multiplying himself so that we have access to him. The only thing in the world that we need is the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. It's the only food, the only drink. It's the only thing that really matters to us from an eternal perspective is the Eucharist. And this is God making sure that there is enough for everyone. This is his promise that he will, he will provide enough for us. And he says that his offering of himself to us in the Eucharist is not dependent on our belief or our worthiness. We wander away. We take it for granted. We dismiss it. We receive unworthily without going to confession. And yet, despite all of our failings, Jesus continues to offer himself to us in the Eucharist. He doesn't hesitate to come to us in this form, despite the fact that we don't deserve it. Right. Jesus is saying to us, I have more than enough of myself to give to the whole world. Like, no matter how much you need of me, I have more. You know, when when people make demands of us, like, oh, I'm at my limit. I can't give you more. You know, like needy relationships. I need more. I need more. Or or me to my kids. There's only one of me and there's five of you. You're going to have to take turns and you're going to have to be patient because I can't multiply myself. And Jesus says, I can. Right. But Jesus can multiply himself. There is enough for him for all of his children, there, there isn't just like one of him and many of us. There is his presence is enough for each of us to have him. His infinite all presence. Of him, right. Like when we receive the host, we receive all of Jesus, not just like a fraction of Jesus or a fragment or a percentage of Jesus. We receive his entire body, his entire blood, his entire soul, all of his divinity, all of God's divinity, all of his godhood is there present in that little tiny wafer in, in the smallest crumb of it, in the smallest drop. I have, I have to tell you at, uh, after receiving communion today, meditating on that in the, in the pew, I just felt an incredible sense of gratitude. Like it brought me to the point of tears. Like I just, the incredible, and I, I, I love a good homily that, that reminds me of this reality because it's easy for us to kind of forget, forget the awesome, stupendous, crazy thing that happens every mass. And just to be, to remember the awesome, amazing thing that just happened in uh, the incredible gratitude for what we receive. I mean, I suppose I should fall on my face in awe at every communion. Um, and yet, it's such an incredible thing that this is it's a privilege that it's become commonplace for us in in one sense, um, because Jesus says, just keep coming back. Come to me to every mass. Come to come every day if you'd like. Why not receive me as, as much as you can? I'm here. You'll, I'll never run out. Kind of awesome. Kind of amazing. Yeah, it's a, this really is one of my favorite feasts. I just absolutely. Mm. I love it. So uh, we could say more, but we need to wrap things up because we've gone on 
And so uh, I'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create Raising the Bets, including Slow, Dina C., George H., Martin P., and Jonathan B. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Raising the Bets and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And that's it for this time. Find links from our discussion in our show notes at sqpn.com slash bets. That's B-E-T-T-S. Send your feedback at the StarQuest Facebook page, facebook.com slash Media. Send us an email at bets at sqpn.com or visit the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord. Write a review at Apple Podcasts and share the podcast with your friends to help us grow our community and reach more listeners. Until next time, I'm Dom Bettinelli. And I'm Melanie Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Raising the Bets on StarQuest. Here's another show on the StarQuest Network you're sure to enjoy, The Secrets of Middle-Earth. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash Middle-Earth.